This week on Life and Faith. We're all just doing the best we can, offering each other the best constructions of reality that we've come across, hoping that in the exchange of views, we hope the truth will out. We hope that the best version will emerge. So I'm offering this as part of the great conversation that human beings are always having as to what's the best way to understand the world and what's the best way to live in it. We have entered into an amusing ourselves to death moment in history. It doesn't make sense to me. If there is God, God's supposed to be free. I was 100% sure that I was sacrificing on the altar of truth my only chance for happiness in this world. Miracles don't necessarily change anybody's mind. It just gets their attention. And so I had to run with my child on my back, the ESA army coming behind us. I said, gee, Uncle George, this is luxurious for a communist. <laughs> Sonny said nothing's too good for the worker, nothing. This is Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. And in today's episode, we welcome back to the show one of our favourite people, the Canadian scholar John Stackhouse. <laughs> yes. Now, we spoke with John from his home in New Brunswick in Canada about his new book, Can I Believe? Christianity for the Hesitant. It's just out now from Oxford University Press. And it's essentially about why Christianity is so strange and yet why billions of people seem to think it's true anyway. 84% of the world's population is affiliated with a religion, uh, but John Stackhouse would say that 100% of us are religious. And while we don't have great figures for religious conversion, you know, how many people make a decision to change what they believe, this is something that happens all the time. People become dissatisfied with their belief system or attracted by another one and decide to make that leap. Yeah, and that decision's a big enough deal that it's enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Article 18, if you remember this, the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion includes freedom to change your religion or belief. Now, of course, it's illegal in lots of places in the world to change or drop your religious affiliation. But for those of us who live in places where we're free to do that, it's an open question how that process unfolds for people. And this is where we begin our conversation with John. He's written this book for people um, investigating, frankly, the meaning of life. And we want to know how deliberately do any of us really go about doing that? Yeah, it's not as if we all take a weekend and go off to some expensive, quiet retreat and meditate and think about this pile of books we've brought with us. And then at the end of the weekend say, yes, there, that's the religion for me. I mean, nobody probably ever selects a religion that way. Religion is, of course, about the very biggest questions we ask in life. So we don't think about religion very much when we're not asking those questions or living in those questions. Religion, for most people, is the path they're already on. And we don't think about changing paths unless something is in our way, something's in the path, or something's not working in the path. So this book is for somebody who is thinking, uh, maybe I need to think about another way, and maybe I'll even give Christianity a chance. There are some definitions I think we should just get to quickly before we move further. So what do we mean by religion and what do we mean by faith or religious belief? This is important if we're going to start thinking about whether or not we can believe. 
Yeah, there's a couple of different ways that scholars of religion define religion. One is the kind of everyday use that would be as common in Toronto as it would be in Sydney. And it would be the idea of religion is belief in God or the gods or supernatural. So if I stand up and shout and start waving my hands, if I'm doing it toward a God, then I'm doing something religious. If I do it at a football game, then I'm not I'm doing exactly the same thing. But it depends. Am I doing it toward the divine in some way? Then uh, it's religious. The problem with that is that a number of movements, ideologies in the world that would undoubtedly belong in any world religions textbook, and they do show up there, Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, don't believe in God or the gods or they're indifferent to them. So it's not a great definition, even though it's what we're used to, particularly in the West. Instead, we, we talk about this functional definition of religion. And religion is whatever functions for an individual or for a group as the defining center of their lives, as their fundamental motivation. I like to say it's what gets you up in the morning and what calms you down at night and what gives your day a sense of purpose. Now, it may be for some people, no more than being as happy as I can possibly be. That's technically called hedonism. For other people, it will be serving my Lord Krishna or following the teachings of Allah or something else. That would be a proper noun religion like Islam or Sikhism or something else. But everybody by this definition is religious in that everybody has some kind of fundamental motivation. And so the question is, whose religion whether it's a proper noun religion or not, best explains the world and helps us to live in it best. And that this is a big part of what you're trying to, to push people towards or encourage people towards in the book. Now, if someone does want to apply themselves to this quest of figuring out what they really believe, what they should believe, what's true, what's most livable, what sh what's the process there? What should they commit to in that, in that journey? Well, you say a number of things there, Simon, that are very helpful, and it has to do with the previous question you asked me that I didn't answer, which has to do with the idea of faith. But faith is, is trusting someone or something on the basis of what we think we know about that person or that object or that team or that institution. There's nothing particularly religious about it. We exercise faith all the time. I trust you to borrow my car and return it intact. I trust her to babysit my kids. I trust him to do my taxes in a fair and accurate way. So we're exercising faith all the time. But I don't just hand my keys to just anybody, and somebody particularly I don't know. I don't let somebody in my house to babysit my children that I haven't already found out certain kinds of knowledge pertinent to that job. I don't hire just anybody to do my taxes. So faith is always a matter of believing that certain things are true about someone or something, and then going beyond what we think we know to trusting them in, uh, in, in a sense, taking a, a bit of a risk. So that's why we would say that we put our faith in our business partner, or we put our faith in our spouse. And ultimately, we put our faith in our religion or our God. And so faith is just the appropriate kind of trusting in what we think we know is true. So that means that every kind of faith to be rational 
needs to be grounded in knowledge that is sufficient for the kind of trust we're exercising. I need to know certain kinds of information about you to loan you $20. I need to know more information about you to loan you $20,000. I need to know certain kinds of information about you to have you look after my kids because they matter more to me than $20,000. And so in each case, it's simply a matter of faith being grounded on the kind of knowledge appropriate to that form of trust. Right. So if I'm convinced by you that this is actually a worthy exercise, and I'm not just going to get up each day and go surfing and think that that's going to completely satisfy my life, and I start to take this more seriously, do you have sort of advice on where to begin in that quest? Well, nobody can survey all the world's religions, become equally expert in all of them, experience them all fully for oneself. You'd be 340 years old and have to have 25 PhDs. Like it's just not possible. And anyone who tries to tell you that their religion is better than everybody else's religion in the world is overclaiming. Nobody can know that. No human being can know that. What we can do instead is to offer each other the best we have. If you found a way of life that you find to be fruitful and moral and ennobling and fun, I want to hear about it because I could use more of those qualities in my life. And if I'm finding that my way of life used to be okay, but it's really not getting the job done, it's not helping me deal with my pain, it's not helping me deal with my disappointment or my discouragement or my fear, I need something more adequate. What do you got? So we're just in this together and we're just offering each other the best we have. And that's all I'm trying to do in this book is say, you know what, a couple billion people have found the Christian way to be a good way to live. Why not at least give it a good look? One of the things you do, John, um, for work is that you teach university students about the major world religions. Um, in your years of doing that, have you noticed that there are particular things that students um, are surprised or confronted by consistently? Yes. In fact, I find that the unit on Christianity is different from all the others because I teach in Canada. It's the unit that everybody thinks they know before we get there, what I'm going to say. And it's the one that surprises them the most when I keep saying things that they don't expect me to say. For a Canadian audience, if I talk about Hinduism, most of them, unless they're from South Asia, don't have any idea at all. They know that they don't have any idea, so they have very few preconceptions, a few stereotypes or two. Even the religion that we all think we know more about, Islam, is mostly not very well known to most people in Canada, and I suspect the same thing is true in Australia. If you said, what are the five pillars of Islam? Most people in the street couldn't name all five. And that's kind of Sunday school stuff, so to speak, for any Muslim. But when it comes to Christianity, Canadians and Aussies all think that we already know what it is. We either like it or we don't, but we all think we know what it is. And the polls show that we don't. And so when I get to that unit, students are often very bored. They slouch in their chairs. They clearly indicate their body language. Go ahead, try to impress me. And by the second or third lecture, they're paying attention. How do you get them to do that? What are, what's happening for them in that time? What's shocking them? Well, I think by the time we get to Christianity, we've usually covered a lot of the older religions already. 
And I've tried to, of course, be as objective as I can be. And I try in particular to help them see how did millions of people in the world come to think that this is the best way to explain the universe? Because that's what religion does, right? It, it, among other things, it gives us a comprehensive explanation for the world and ourselves and everything. So I try to help people like a good tour guide would say, see how those people could think Buddhism was a good way to see things or Confucianism is a good way to see things. So when we come to Christianity, uh, they've already seen a lot of very sensible and very successful ways of dealing with the world. And Christianity ends up looking very strange. They've already seen how somebody could be a Hindu or somebody could be a Muslim. That There's a kind of basic logic, moral and intellectual logic to it. But Christianity starts talking about this carpenter from northern Israel who decides he wants to be a rabbi, even though he doesn't have the schooling for it. And he gathers a little group of followers and they traipse around the countryside, getting in and out of scrapes with the authorities until finally they prove to be sufficiently pestilential that the authorities decide to remove them as the irritant that they are by basically cutting off the head of the snake. They're going to kill the leader, which they do with the kind of dispatch that Rome was known for. And this sad little figure in a remote corner of the Roman Empire becomes the leader of the most popular religion in the history of the world, which means it's the most popular explanation for everything ever in human history. Now, that's just really strange. We're just used to it, but it's a pretty weird story. You basically say in the book that the other major religions make more sense than Christianity does, which is kind of a weird thing for a Christian to say. So why is that not kind of a knockdown argument for like, it's just weird. It's too weird. Why, why did 2 billion people believe it anyway? Well, that's the interesting question in some ways. Uh, it's the question at the heart of the book. Uh, once you, you understand what Christianity is actually saying, and I take the, the second part of the book to try to explain that, and not in any particularly idiosyncratic way. I think that a Catholic or an Orthodox or a Protestant Christian should be able to agree with my portrait of Christianity. I'm not trying to market some unusual version of it. But once you've taken a look at that, you say, that's, that's really odd. How would anybody believe that, let alone 2 billion people believe that? So the only way that anybody believes a weird explanation for something is if they become convinced that that is the best explanation for the data. So if you think, for instance, of atomic and subatomic physics, think of certain forms of cosmology. There are all sorts of theories nowadays downstream of Heisenberg and Bohr and Einstein and the gang that I barely, barely can even articulate, let alone understand. But I'm told by smart people that this is the best way to construe the data, even though it's in many cases counterintuitive. But they've tried the obvious explanations and they don't work as well as this really strange one. And that's what I think is the case with Christianity. There's no way that anyone would intuitively come up with this religion. It's way too specific. Like this particular guy, this particular place, this particular time dies a death on a cross and he's the great winner of history. He's the Lord of all. Like there's no way to come up with that conclusion unless the data points strongly in that direction. And that's what a couple billion of us think is the case. 
One of the challenges, John, is that, yes, people probably, I think, in the West would recognise now that uh, all the material success and um, productivity and the way we've been able to solve a lot of the problems of supply haven't solved all our deep longings. And yet, probably for a lot of people, they might acknowledge that, but not think, oh, maybe Christianity is the thing I need to, that's missing in my life. That's part of your challenge, isn't it, with this? Well, it is, because a lot of us think that, yeah, whatever measure of material success I've gained right now isn't satisfying, but if it's, I just had 25% more. <laughs> if I just had 25% more, right? That's the great illusion. Just 25% more, I, I'd be fine. And yet, in, uh, in global surveys of reported happiness, the results do not map onto GDP. Oh boy, do they ever not. Uh, do they, don't, they don't map onto average income. That the, the people who report the highest levels of happiness in the world are people in generally third world, global south countries who are deeply influenced by what we would call traditional religion. And particularly by Christianity, since that is the majority religion of most places in the global south now. People find that happiness is about family, it's about friendship, it's about meaning, it's about purpose. And guess what material things can't buy you? Everything on that list I just gave. This is Life and Faith, and Simon and I are speaking with John Stackhouse about his latest book, Can I Believe? Christianity for the Hesitant. Now, John, you talk about lots of different grounds on which Christians believe. So there's the history, the philosophical angle, the ethical angle, very importantly, people's personal experience. And you mentioned that you know, different ones are different, are more important for different people, but I want to ask, what's been the most crucial of those for you in choosing Christianity or perhaps more importantly, sticking with it as long as you have? Well, you won't be surprised that a guy who makes his living in his head finds Christianity to be a really good way of being a thoughtful person. I mean, to me, uh, one of the main reasons I'm still a Christian is not just that the usual 10 arguments against Christianity I found convincing answers for. But because as an intellectual, as a thinking person, uh, I find the way that Christianity explains the world is quite capacious. It's quite actually welcoming to other points of view. So when I do, when I engage in history, which is one of my disciplines, I can listen to a Marxist historian. I can listen to a feminist historian. I can listen to a Muslim historian. And I can listen to what they have to say. And even though I think that their worldview in some ways is more constrained or more confined than I am, they're paying attention to certain things, not to others. I can still listen to them. And there's a place for me to put that Marxian analysis or that feminist analysis within a Christian worldview. Properly construed, Christianity says, well, if you've got some truth, I want to hear it. And not only, not only do I want to hear it, I've got a place to put it. Like that, that fits in to a quite capacious way of seeing the world. So I, I feel badly for narrow-minded Christians because they're not really taking advantage of their faith. Christianity is quite expansive. It, it is a, a, a way to appreciate literature and politics and physics and philosophy in a way that I haven't seen rivaled by the other religions I've studied. 
Now, having said that, which, you know, perhaps pays myself the, the odious compliment of being a smart guy, I'd also say that I'm, like a lot of smart people, I'm not terribly capable in my private life. And I need a lot of help to know how to be a good person. I need a lot of help to know how to be a happy person. I need a lot of help to know how to be uh, the kind of person other people want to be around. And I have found that not only reading the Bible gives me guidance, but praying to God, to me, results in God actually guiding me and nudging me through the day and saying, you know, knock it off, Stackhouse. That's the third story in a row that you've told that makes yourself look good. Like, you know, a little humility would be good here, right? Or it says, like, like actually care for that person who seems awkward at the edge of the cocktail party. Don't just go to the beautiful people. Go to the people who aren't doing it. Like, God does that a lot for us if we will listen. And it's those nudges throughout my adult life that have convinced me that somebody's there who is better than I am, who is trying to help me become better than I am. Okay, John, you, you're writing from a position of conviction, but you're a thoughtful person. There must be times where you have your doubts. What are the, what are the moments that are most challenging to your faith? To me, the consistent refrain of doubt in my life is over evil and suffering. I'm not terribly troubled about lots of other things about the career of Christianity. There's, there's lots of, of black marks in the history of Christianity, imperialism and sexism and homophobia and so on. And, and those are all truly horrible and important matters. But I think there are useful and reasonable responses to that from the Christian point of view. But what literally keeps me awake sometimes, what literally chokes my breath in my throat is the latest outrage, whether it's a person I know on my own, in my own circle of acquaintance, who's horribly suffering to apparently no good end, or it's the latest natural disaster, or it's the latest political scandal. And I feel so impatient with that. How can God be patient with that? I feel so upset by that. How can God not be upset by that? Why does he keep letting this stuff go on? Now, again, I've written a whole book about that, a different book, and I talk about it a bit in this book too. But at the end of the day, the cleverest answers I've been able to find only go so far. And for me, what keeps me going is that I think I have good reason to trust God because I think God made himself known in Jesus Christ. And that person, Jesus, I can't believe doesn't care. And what I need to know more than anything else is whether God cares. And in the face of Jesus, I think, yeah, yeah, he does. Okay, I can hang in there for another day. Well, let me pick up on one of my inclinations or or biases but the question of beauty because you talk about this in your book aesthetic grounds for belief the question of beauty as a pointer to god tell us about that well from many points of view today beauty seems hard to justify um, why is the world as full of beauty as it is and why do we as homo sapiens have the capacity to appreciate it 
again, if the, if the dominant narrative in our culture is uh, evolutionary theory, and I'm not against evolutionary theory if we talk about it in biological terms, but once you start moving it out of biology, as Darwin warned us we shouldn't, if we move it out of biology and start using it as a comprehensive way of explaining things, then why would the world be so full of beauty that doesn't seem to give anything reproductive advantage? Why is the sunset or the sunrise so lovely? And why do I think it is? Like, how does that make sense into any kind of evolutionary narrative? How does that help me uh, secure more food or more mates? It doesn't make sense. Instead, it does make a lot of sense that the world is so ridiculously beautiful if there is a creator who loves beauty for its own sake. And it also, I think, and this is something else I love about Christianity, is that it endorses human art as well, not just the beauty of creation, but it says that art is something that doesn't need justification in terms of something else. We don't just create art to help people become more efficient in the workplace or to give them a little rest so that they can come back to work and work another 10 hours. That art is a good thing to do on its own. That's a very deep human instinct. Christianity can explain it as creatures created by a creator to be creative. Not every worldview can. John, one of the things that struck me most about your book, which I loved and I found um, totally enthralling, um, is that you work really hard to be, or at least to come across as fair and even-handed. Um, you're not trying to trick anyone. You want people to investigate freely and you even advise people to kind of look carefully into objections and um, criticisms of Christianity and you look at some of those. Um, and, you know, I think you succeed at being fair and even-handed. Um, I may be a bit biased there. I'm kind of on your team here. Uh, but to play devil's advocate for a minute, like why not fight dirty? Um, why not use every trick up your sleeve to convince people of what you think is true? Or, you know, like is the, is the even-handedness a trick as well? You know, luring people in with that appearance of neutrality. Well, this raises the interesting question as to why I bother at all. Like, why am I and other Christians bothering to try to convert other people to Christianity? It's like the world's worst Ponzi scheme where nobody gets rich. <laughs> I mean, maybe if, if I were a pastor, maybe, you know, if I were trying to grow a church so that I could grow my own income, sure, that, that, would, that would make a certain kind of sense. But I... I the, the amount of royalties I get <laughs> in this book is so pathetically small. No, <laughs> like I make a dollar on a book. You know, if I sell 100 copies, I can take my family. No, no, I'm going to buy lots of copies for Christmas. <laughs> God John, bless you. God bless okay. you. So I make, if I sell 200 copies, <laughs> I can take my wife out for a nice dinner as long as we don't have dessert. I mean, that, that's, so, so there's just, there's no ulterior motive that I can think of here. So why is anybody trying to convert other people to Christianity? Only because... It's the same motivation that I have in trying to talk you into trying my new favorite restaurant or my listen to my new favorite band. If I care about you, I want your life to be better. And if this has made my life better, I want to share it with you. So likewise, if you don't like that kind of food or you're not into that kind of music, then I shut up about it because you're not interested. So we can still be friends and we'll talk about baseball instead or, or we'll, we'll go water skiing instead. And that's what friendship does. 
So for me, at this stage of my life, the kind of relaxed attitude I have is, is because I think this is a really good thing so far as I know, and that's all I've got. So I don't have to try to fool you or trick you or manipulate you into something. It's like anyone who has the world, you know, people who really love their jobs in sales are people who really believe in what they're selling. And if you really believe in what you're selling, you don't have to work very hard at selling. You just have to tell the truth. But this is not quite like your favorite restaurant, right? In that, you know, is this just a preference thing? Hey, this one works for me. It might work for you. Why is this not just, in the case of religious belief, is it not just kind of pick a mix, whatever you like? Yes, of course. The, the stakes are quite a bit higher here. So it's really more like discussing different political or economic views. It's more like different kinds of sexual ethics. It's more like different ways of raising children. Like the stakes are, of course, much higher. Uh, I was simply saying that in, even in those cases, however, where nobody can properly claim certainty, nobody can properly claim to have gotten to the bottom of it and to now have the one truth that everyone else should shut up and listen to. People do that all the time, but they can't properly claim that. We're all just doing the best we can, offering each other the best constructions of reality that we've come across, hoping that in the exchange of views, we hope the truth will out. We hope that the best version will emerge. So I'm offering this as part of the great conversation that human beings are always having as to what's the best way to understand the world and what's the best way to live in it. Final question um, about a different group of people. I'm wondering what you would say to the person who says, you know what, I would, I would love to believe in God, like Christianity kind of appeals to me. I wish I could be a Christian, but I just don't see it. It just doesn't ring true for me. I've investigated, I've tried, but like God hasn't shown up for me. Yeah, I've got friends who have wondered about that too uh, and, and say exactly that, like God hasn't shown up for me. If God would only show up for me. And uh, I want to say something hard and something gentle. The hard thing is maybe you're not as open as you think you are. Maybe, in fact, you're demanding that God show up on your terms. And one of the most fundamental lessons that the Bible says to us is that God is God and you're not. And it's not just about you. That if you want to get on the right side of the supreme being, uh, a little deference, a little respect, um, you might take the trouble to find out, well, how does the supreme being want me to approach him, her, or it. Uh, our consumerist culture has trained us to think that everybody should come to me on my terms. But God isn't a breakfast cereal, and God's not a salesman. God is God. So it would behoove us to think, well, how should I come into the presence of the Almighty? What does he want from me? That's the hard thing to say, is to, is to think, this isn't you going shopping. The, the more gentle thing is to say that I'm confident as somebody who reads and believes the Bible that God really does love you. And he is already working in your life. He is already giving you an interest in this subject. He's already whispering in your ear. Hang in there. Find some people who really believe this stuff, who can introduce you to it. Hang out with them and see if God doesn't in fact show up 
once you give him a little more time and a little more chance. I'm confident he will. You've been listening to Life and Faith, and Natasha and I have been speaking with John Stackhouse, whose new book makes a really engaging case for why the weirdness of Christianity fits the weirdness of the world as we know it. It's called Can I Believe? Christianity for the Hesitant. It's out now through Oxford University Press. Thanks so much to John today for making the time across really complicated time zones. And thank you to Anthea Godsmark for producing this episode as she does each week. If there's someone you think might like Life and Faith, and especially this episode, why not send it on to them? Also, leave us a rating or review. It helps get the word out. Next week. The way it started was um, I was working on a larger piece, like a longer writing piece. And one day I found my laptop open, which I must have left it open, and 8,000 words were gone, like just vanished, (laughs) which was basically half the work was, had disappeared. That was pretty scarring for that week where I was like, oh, words just disappeared. There's no permanence. I can't be certain that they won't just vanish. So then I thought, well, what I can do is write very tiny things and try and put some boundaries up on those little tiny things, haiku, and just write within that little small room and then have a sense of satisfaction and completion of that I've I've created I've created a thing. <laughs>